Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. My guest today is Stephen Roderick. Stephen is a contributing writer for New York Times Magazine and is a contributing editor for Men's Journal. He's also written for Rolling Stone, GQ, The New Republic, New York Times Magazine, Men's Journal, and others, and The Magical Stranger is his first book. Before becoming a journalist, uh, he worked as the deputy press secretary for Senator Alan Dixon. He holds a bachelor and master's in political science from Loyola University of Chicago and a master's in journalism from Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. Steve, and welcome to Midrest. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, really appreciate you taking time this afternoon to come on board with us. I wanted to start things off on kind of a, a personal note with your book, I uh, sure. it's funny that, and this was told to me when I was growing up, that uh, regardless of, of how old you are, if uh, you're always somebody's, you're one of your friends or one of your shipmates' son, once you're a, a naval dependent or a naval brat of somehow, somewhere that you are, always going to be that to those who knew you when you were younger. And there's something sure. special about uh, the Navy family. And uh, that's one thing that really hit home for me as uh, I just retired back in, in 2009. And I have a couple of children of my own uh, who were roughly the same age as, as you and your older sister when your, your father's mishap took place. And right. reading that was very nice. Because you you have some options, and again, it's, it's a very personal book uh, to to be able uh, to look at that father figure from the perspective of one of his children, and how the and you saw this, I know, when you were um, on cruise, and we'll get to some of the topics on that later. But I think you've really done a great thing for those who have both served to be able to look at it from the other end of the scope, so to speak but also for other family members who have been in similar situations to be able to go, okay, so it wasn't just me who has felt that. And uh, so a little thank you, first of all. It was a very, a very good book. Well, I really appreciate that. I mean, that, that was sort of the goal, the sort of uh, – and we can talk about this a little bit more to give it, you know, the perspective of a son looking up to his father who was a naval officer, but also – you know, through the the part of the book where I follow my dad's old squadron to look at it through the eyes of the father who has to go away and leave his children for six or eight months at a time. And uh, that means a lot to me coming from you that, that, that you felt that way about it. And, well, well, thanks. So easy, easy to do. Uh, but let's kind of uh, step back for a second and just kind of set a scene for, for those that, um, you know, haven't had a chance to, to, to look at the book or some of the preliminary stuff, but... The title, The Magical Stranger, where did you get that title from? And, and towards the end, if you could just flesh out how a professional journalist like yourself, who's spent a career with athletes and entertainers, finally reached the point that the second go-around, you decided to dive into something 
as personal as this book is? Well, it's, those are two good questions. I mean, the, the, the title of The Magical Stranger, uh, it started first uh, a editor of mine uh, nicknamed me The Magical Stranger just because I could go into situations and get other uh, other people to talk to me that other reporters couldn't get talked to me, whether it was charm or, or whatever. I was able to get them to open up and tell me things they didn't tell anybody else. And he said, you know, you're kind of like this magical stranger. You can come into these different situations and get people to talk to you. But to me, my father was always kind of this magical stranger in the sense that, uh, you know, he was killed in a missile off the Kitty Hawk when I was 13. But from, I'd say from 6 or 7 to 13, you know, he was gone uh, 180, 200 days of the year, either on, on cruise or on workups. And to me, he was this magical stranger that he flew these jets off carriers. And it, it, it was so, you know, it seemed so heroic and glamorous and... You know, he went to mass every day, and he set this great example, but he was also, at least in those years, largely absent. So it, it was hard for me to totally get my arms around him as a human being. And, of course, then after he was killed, as often happens, uh, you have a situation where my mother and my grandparents would just say, you know, your your dad was a hero, and he died flying first country, which all was true, and we'd have models of this plane around our house and pictures of him in his uniform. But as a kid, that really was a hard image to live up to, just as, a, you know, this, it, almost like a man up on a statue that you're trying to live up to, not to a real human being. And one of the great things about the book was, you know, I, one of the things I found is he was a Naval Academy graduate, but I found a diary that he kept when he was 13 or 14, which is roughly the age I was when he was killed. And it turned out that he was as much of a screw-up when he was that age as I was. He was breaking windows with snowballs, getting yelled at by his paper route manager because he was taking shortcuts. And uh, there never, I think there never was a son who was more happy to learn that his dad at least had moments of being a screw-up <laughs> than I was. Um, to your second question of, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd originally um, spent some time on the Kitty Hawk, which was the uh, the carrier my dad was on when he was killed eight or nine years ago, uh, and wrote a magazine story about it, and um, which was kind of a, I guess you'd say, a test run for the book. But after that, I just sort of had this, you know, do I really want to spend two or three years kind of dealing with this material that can be both inspiring, but also for me, like to go through my dad's accident report and stuff like that can be sort of traumatic. And I kind of hemmed and hawed on, hawed on it. And then the Navy uh, kind of forced my hand when they started uh, bringing the Growler in and retiring the Prowler squadron by squadron. And I knew that if I was going to write this book where I followed my dad's old squadron through, you know, a year and a half, seeing through the eyes of their CO, if I really wanted to do it right, I wanted to do it while they were still flying Prowlers. So I basically had to get my 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 gear in, in shape in in 2009 you know they were about about ready to go out on their last cruise with the prowler and I so I got my I got my ducks in a row and started working on it and that's sort of how it all came about as you uh, I guess a lot of us in our lives have, have as our fathers have passed on of have gone back and said, you know, I, I wish I'd asked this question, or I wish I'd known more about this situation. How much sure. do, you, do you find that, that people connect uh, from that aspect with your book, who may have nothing to do with the military, but who've, who've looked, uh, you know, find themselves looking back and saying, I wish I'd known this uh, at the time? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I find that that's sort of across the board that even people whose fathers are still alive, that there's gaps in their life or things they don't know about them that for whatever reason they don't want to talk about, whether it's traumatic military service or just some part of their past that um, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I, I my dad, you know, he served in Vietnam or something like that and he would never talk about it and I just, I wish he would have talked about it just so I could understand him better. So that, that that's really meant a lot to me, the different people. You know, I had a, a guy come up to me in San Diego whose father was um, a Navy guy who was killed in the Hilo crash when he was 12 and um, he kind of came up, came to see me and had a chart that kind of lined up the similarities to our stories, and they were very similar. But I think it was more just, you know, someone like him coming up to me and saying, like, you sort of put into words what I've always felt inside, that there was something about my father I didn't know or I felt a little cheated about not knowing. And for me, it was a, it was a little more difficult in the sense that right before he was killed, uh, I was supposed to be meeting him in Hawaii and coming back to San Diego with him on the boat uh, for a tiger cruise. And I always regret that. I felt, you know, well, I know he lands planes on carriers, but how? And how does this squadron work? And I felt like, at least in a 13-year-old kid's way, I was going to figure some of those things out more on that five- or six-day trip. And unfortunately, his accident happened on the cruise a few weeks before that. So we never had, I never got to have that experience. And I always, you know, had all these questions about I knew what he did for a living, but I didn't know what the day-to-day life was like. And that was why when I decided to write a book, I didn't want to just write about my father. I wanted to follow his old squadron and see what their day-to-day life was, the boring, the heroic, the loneliness, the, you know, the, the, the tomfoolery in ports and all that kind of stuff. And that, I mean, just to be, you know, the, the squadron BAQ-135, the Black Ravens and, uh, Commander Hunter Tupperware, uh, they really welcomed me in this family, and I just um, it, it meant so much to me that that they just you know they, they treated me like one of the guys, and I got to see as much as you could see as a civilian, just like what what it takes to run a squadron on a day to day basis. And through that, uh, I got a greater appreciation to the sacrifices that the men and women make in the Navy and the other branches of the military, but also. You know, he gave me an idea into what my father was doing all those hours when, even when he was home and he would be away for 12 or 14 hours a day. So that was, it was just a great experience. Now, regular listeners to our show hopefully caught on to something you just mentioned there. There's a, a great Easter egg in your book and something I, I knew that, that, that Tupper, uh, was involved with your book somehow, but I did appreciate, um, that there's almost a story within a story there. And Tupper has been a guest on Midrats before. Yeah, I've, I've listened to that one. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed the correspondence. I've had him with him, you know, through the years. Uh, he's just, just a great guy. But um, if you could take for a minute and explain how Tupper plays into your story about your father and the Prowler crews and – you know, maybe if it helps out as well, you know, as a writer of nonfiction, as you began to develop that relationship with, with Tupper, and he, he really did give you a lot of access right. uh, in a variety of angles, did that change the original direction you're going to in your book? And how did that change take place if it did? 
Well, I always wanted to, you know, it is, it's it's like anything in life, it's, it's a bit of a crapshoot where I knew I wanted to write about my, my father's old squadron and not another VAQ squadron. And, yeah, I mean, there was, um, with Tupper as the, as the CO, it's like, uh, you know, you're playing poker and they're, the first two cards you get down are aces. You know what I mean? There's like, you know, there's a lot of great CEOs and there's a lot of, you know, boring CEOs and uh, CEOs who kind of give you an insight into what it's like. And there would have, there could have been other CEOs who were like, you know what? I can't, I can't let you into my world because, you know, I, I want to make flag or something like that. But, uh, I always hoped that, you know, the story would be kind of a parallel story, a parallel story about my father. And uh, it all sort of started with um, my mother, uh, who has not remarried, uh, has these VAQ-135 uh, coffee mugs in. I put a request in to get some new coffee mugs and um, basically found out, and long story short, was that uh, Tupper was taking command on July 2nd, 2009, which was uh, two days short of the 30th anniversary of my dad taking command of the squadron. And... We sort of just kind of went from there, and that was always the dream. I mean, what what happened and what's in the book was always what I was hoping it would be. I mean, I, I, I feared that if I got a CEO who wasn't that open or that cooperative, I would have to go in a different direction. But I did always want, like I said, to look at what Navy life is like from my perspective, from my mother's perspective, as much as I could from my father's perspective, but also from a CO's perspective in the Navy now. And um, Hunter, Hunter uh, I, I, I can't, I, I owe him everything in that book. That book um, wouldn't be one-tenth of what it is if it hadn't been for Tupper. And I, I will be forever grateful. I mean, he put up with a lot. I mean, I, when, once, uh, once he left the, uh, the command of the squadron, he went uh, to be air boss. Uh, on the on the Lincoln, and I, I flew to Dubai to kind of go over some of the stuff in the book. And uh, you know, he's got four days in port, you know, before he's got to ship back out. And you know, he'd give me five or six hours a day. And um, I, I I see him and a couple of the other men in the squadron that I met as almost like brothers. You know, that that you're supposed to keep a as a journalist you're supposed to keep a degree of professional distance, but these guys were so great to me that, um, uh, you know, I, 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 like I said, I saw them as brothers. The one thing I would say, though, is they never they never asked me once not to call it like I saw it. You know, what, what you read in the book is how it happened. It's not the PG-13 or the sanitized version, and um, that just made me all the more grateful. They They didn't say, like, okay... We can have you hang around, but don't put that part in where we're doing this nutty thing or I'm having this argument with CAG or something like that. They were right what you see. And uh, as a journalist, that's all you can hope for is people who are willing to say, come into my world and write about what our life is like, the good, the bad, the ridiculous, the absurd, the parts of our life which are heroic and the parts of our life which are more Catch-22 than the actual novel Catch-22 is. So... Uh, I'll always be grateful to him and the other guys in the squadron. One aspect of the book, I, I should warn you that I was a surface warfare officer, and so I, my sure. knowledge of aviators has has, uh, has been limited. Although my older son is a is a pilot, my younger son is currently in flight school. But uh, oh wow, uh, um, I was impressed. I mean, I know these guys party hard. 
that was pretty evident to us close. But uh, I wasn't as uh, as clear on how hard they had to work uh, to maintain the proficiency and how close the line between um, success and some kind of screw-up was. Can you kind of talk about that part of their world? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's a good news, bad news thing. Is that I think the good news is, uh, as you probably know, the, the mishap rate in the United States Navy from, I don't know the stats right in front of me from my dad's era, which is the late 70s. He was killed in the end of 79, but let's say late 70s, early 80s, to now, 30 years later, um, the the mishap rate is way down, and the fatality rate is way down. And that is because I think uh, the bad news is that, you know, they fly their planes more carefully, and I sometimes wonder if the Navy has them fly their planes more carefully, not because they're trying to protect the lives of the aviators, but they're trying to protect the assets of these you know, tens of millions of dollars of planes. And, um, yeah, the, the briefing and, you know, the mechanical issues, I mean, one of the, one of the, uh, I made the equation of the, uh, in the story, the metaphor that, uh, you know, Tupper was like a baseball manager taking over a team that in one year is moving into a new stadium. But, you know, he, he's got to get results with the old stadium and the old gear. And he was, you know, he was uh, had to lead these guys and do combat missions over to Afghanistan, and they're flying 20, 25-year-old planes. And, yeah, you know, the, the Prowler, unlike the different versions of the Hornet, it's a standalone plane on an aircraft carrier. You can't go to another squadron and scrounge your part or something. So if, you, if a plane goes down, you know, they have the, you know, the plane of the squadron that doesn't fly very much, the hangar queen, you try to get it off that, apart from that thing. But it's much... I mean, just the, the logistics to get these planes up in the air and um, proficient uh, was really astounding. And I think that is a change versus, like I said, my father's 25, 30 years ago. Not that my father wasn't a guy who poked his hole in every little hole and checked the plane and everything, but I just think it's more kind of codified and organized in terms of the way um, you look at these planes and make sure that they're okay to fly. Now, the flip side of that, and a lot of the Navy guys would say, is that just like, you know, they, they feel like a, a, a Pentagon desk monkey. It's like there's so much paperwork now. Maybe you know about, you know, if if this part's down, you know, get do this and trip it and get, you know, so-and-so to sign off on it. So I think they chafe at that, you know. The, they, they chafe at the amount of uh, paperwork they need to do. But at the same time, you can't argue with this. You can't. You, you can argue about a part of the way of life that's been lost, but you can't argue with the stats in terms of the accident rates going way, way down. So, so, so these guys they have to, you know, kind of live on the edge when they're flying. But they all have their, you know, the, the senior guys have their department head jobs, whether it's maintenance or operations or scheduling and stuff like that, and they've got to do that all in conjunction with, you know, maintaining, you know, razor sharp. Uh, level of expertise for landing on a carrier in a monsoon or something, uh, you know, coming back from, you know, a mission over Afghanistan. Another kind of uh, sudden thread in your book that I think um, really has some import in a lot of areas, and some people have argued, I know the, the, the term has fallen out of favor, though I actually prefer the long war that we've been in, a lot of people define it, the attacks of September 11th, but there are also a lot of people to go, no, actually, this thread really started 
when the hostages were taken in 1979 in right. Iran from our embassy. And that's what canceled the Tiger crews for your father's squadron. That's right. And when they headed west, and then the, the mishap that he and, and three of his uh, uh, fellow aviators uh, were lost in the mishap southeast of Diego Garcia, through now, a lot of the American public and even service members, we, we've seen not just Navy, people either killed in combat or killed in training or workups or just in the process of doing the mission unrelated, but we've seen a lot of the pictures of the funerals and right. uh, an officer handing a flag off to a young widow or in some cases, one of the most memorable ones I saw was a Marine Corps officer in the course of uh, going to see the, the wife, the son, got up. And you were 13 and your father was lost. Right. But this, this young man was maybe nine or eight. Uh, right. it, still, it still hits you center mass when I think about it. And yeah. you you were there. You know what it's like. At, you know, 13 is such a critical age for a young man. You know, whether people are in the service, but especially those that may not have which is the vast majority of people in our country, thank you sure. anyway, that have no connection to the military. And they just see this picture as if it's set up or out of this movie. But these are real people, real families, who live in a very unique culture and lifestyle. You know, what can they, what do they really need to know about these young widows and these young families who in the blink of an eye have lost their father or lost their daughter. Recently, there was a recent right. Naval Academy graduate. She was lost in a prowler. Yes, um, yeah, that, that actually happened on, on the yeah on the day my book was closing, and I, you know, I, had, I put a little afterward uh, note into it. That it it's, yeah, I mean, the, you know, that's a good question. The general answer is is give them, you know, help and love. You know, it just I, I think. They are even when you live in a navy community. You know, I, I reconnect with some of my junior high and high school classmates, and they said, you know, the, the days that I was not there after my father was killed. The teacher says, "Well, just teach him, treat him like a regular kid, and don't mention the accident." And I know that was done with the the best of intentions, but I think it's not the right way to go. I mean, you know, if if you know, I was talking to a school teacher who teaches at a military near a military community, and she was asking me, "He's like, well, what can I do for these dependent kids whose dads are gone?" It's like, don't harp on it, but let them know that you know and that you're watching out for them. You know, it can be just taking a nine-year-old kid aside for five minutes and saying, "Hey, I know your dad's uh, going back to Afghanistan, and if you ever need to talk or you know need a ride home or something, let me know." Don't you know? You know, kids that age or my age, you know, you, you don't want to be made to look different, but you do want to know that these other people in the community care about you. And it can be done subtly. You know, you, it can be, you know, calling the widow and saying, you know, hey, um, why don't we take your boy on a ski trip with us and give you, give you a break for a couple of days or something. It can be incredibly small things that let people know that, that you care, and that's that's all people are looking for. Is for they're not looking for you to throw a parade for my family or any other family. They want just want you to know that they that you care about them, and um, particularly families that are not living on base or living you know they're living you know twenty or thirty miles away from a base or after the 
person has been, you know, the the spouse has been killed, they've moved to another another state or something, they've lost a lot of those ties. Um, if you can just give them the smallest thing that lets them know that you know what they've been through, that you appreciate it, and you're there to help, uh, it's the small things that really matter, in my opinion. As you uh, as you wrote this book, it, it seemed to me that uh, you were working through a lot of stuff. Obviously, how, how cathartic yeah. was was this? And and uh, did you? I mean, a- having gone through the process of finding out what really happened, or as much as you could of what really happened when your when your uh, father's plane went down, uh, how meaningful is that to you now? Is this does that make the experience much more worthwhile, or 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 where are you with that? Uh, you know, I, there is this, like, that kind of feeling or, or the cliche that you're going to go into a book like this and you're going to write it and you're going to solve all your problems and you're going to answer every question you ever had about your father. And uh, I am so grateful I did it and I did learn so much about him and I learned, you know, like, well, just a, a quick background, you know, my dad's playing, they were doing training missions as they were heading back toward the Gulf for potential attack against or, or, or you know, Iran or something like that. And they basically only found an oil slick. And as often happens in these mishaps, if they don't find any other, you know, extenuating circumstances, uh, it's ruled as pilot error. And as my father's only son, you know, that was a very heavy weight that I carried. Uh, you know, why I chose to carry it, I couldn't tell you, but I, I was like, you know, I couldn't square the fact that here's my dad who graduated in the top 10% at, at the Naval Academy and it was a skipper at 36 and seemed to be on the fast track that something he did wrong caused all this tragedy in poor families' lives. And, you know, just talking to, you know, people who flew with him and with other people who were on the Kitty Hawk and the, there's not, there's not a, you know, as they say in the movie, so there's not a reveal where it turned out to be this part. Um, it could have still been his fault, but, you know, they were flying without their radar, uh, radar altimeters on, which is, anybody knows anything about aviation, which is most people know more than I do. Um, they're more exact, and if you're flying a mission where you're flying 100 feet off the ground or off the ocean, as they were doing, uh, your barometric altimeter um, can be off by 140, 150 feet. So he may have banked into a turn thinking he was at 150 feet because that's what his barometric altimeter said. And he could have been at 30 feet, and, you know, that could have uh, been why the wing clipped the ocean. So I, I didn't I didn't get, you know, I didn't have that kind of rosebud moment where, where I was like, oh, I can now blame this. It still could have been his fault, but I have a much better understanding of the the chaotic situation. They were flying without the radar altimeters on because there were Soviet spy ships around, and they thought they might be able to be tracked by those radar altimeters so that there was a lot of extenuating factors and they hadn't flown in nine days because they were kind of trucking over to the Persian Gulf. A lot of factors that, as a boy, I didn't know. And I just thought, okay, this was my dad's fault, and I have to kind of carry this guilt about it. And, you know, it, it wasn't wartime, but, you know, they talk about the haze of war. You know, there is a haze of naval aviation or any kind of military service that makes these situations not – they're not cut and dry. And knowing just knowing that meant a lot to me that – I'll never know exactly what happened, but the possibility that it wasn't my father's fault and it wasn't negligence or anything that he did wrong, um, it you know, it meant a lot and was was an incredibly cathartic experience for me. One thing I wanted to, to, to share with the listeners is um, 
places in the book that, that had me laughing out loud. A, a little bit of schadenfreude on my part, like the, you going through swim falls and uh, yeah, you know, yeah. get out of the pool and actually get to where you needed to be was good. But also, as I started to step back and was thinking about, you know, the time that you actually spent with your, your father's old squadron, yeah. um, the time you spent with the JOs, seeing how the ship worked, seeing how the maintainers worked on the right. aircraft, trying to get these old things, you know, getting through the end of the deployment, that type of, of sitting there, sharing the space, sharing the oxygen, enjoying the, the JOs, if, if you can use that phrase, did yeah. that experience give you some insight into your father that you, you really didn't have before when you said, oh, this is his culture, now I get it? How did that help you, not so much as a professional journalist, but just as a man trying to understand his father? It, it helped a lot. That's a great question, and it helped a lot. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, mean, I always make the equation of that, you know, as a kid or once I got a little older, I was like, why, why didn't he just walk away, you know, when he was lieutenant commander or something and stop flying and spend more time with his family? Well, you spend this time with the squadron, which is a family, basically, and you watch not just the flying, but the shenanigans and all the fun they have, you know, even with the, with the BS paperwork and stuff like that. And you can imagine, and I talked to a lot of the guys about this, how hard that life would be to walk away from. And the problem, it's like professional athletes in the sense, you can't step away for two or three years. You can't say, okay, my wife's got a little baby. Well, I'm going to step away for two or three years, and then I'm going to get back on this track like you can do in many careers. You step away off the track, maybe you can get in the reserves or something like that, but it, 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 you, you do irreparable damage to your career. So I have a, a, a exponential, you know, billion times greater appreciation of what his, that life was like and why he loved it so much and why, as much as he loved his family, he couldn't walk away from it and that it would have been unfair to ask him to walk away from it. It just, you know, he would have been miserable and, you know, one of the few, one of the few cliches that I do kind of buy a little into, you know, he died doing something he loved and, you know, obviously doesn't make up for losing him, but I think if he got out early or taken shore, shore duty or something like that, a part of him would have died at that point. So I, it just gave me a much greater appreciation of why he did what he did. And, and that, if this book sold zero copies or if I got paid zero dollars for it, that's uh, one of the great things about being a journalist. You can actually <laughs> go out and find these things out and someone will pay you money to do it. And I just felt blessed, blessed to have that experience. Well, it's an excellent book. I recommend uh, people... Uh, buying a copy and, and reading it. Uh, what uh, what's coming up next for you? What have you got uh, down the road? Um, my wife's trying to and, uh, and you know and anybody who's interested in the book, I have a website, themagicalstranger.com. But my wife is getting trying to get me to take a couple a couple months off and uh, just take it easy. But the one thing I've sort of uh, inherited from my father is kind of uh, workaholic, and I'm, I'm trying like I'm in Maine right now, trying to take it easy. So. We'll see how that goes for the rest of the summer. Uh, I don't know what I'm gonna, my next big project's going to be, but um, I'm going to try to take it easy. Well, Stephen, do enjoy the rest of the summer, and thank you very much for for the book. It was more than just a uh, just a pleasant uh, read. It uh, it really it, it helped me think about a few issues. I think anybody that either 
is in the service or has a loved one in the service, really should take a time. And the book is by uh, Stephen Roderick, The Magical Stranger, A Son's Journey into His Father's Life. I wish you the, the best of the luck, Steve. Well, well, thanks a lot. Let me just say real quick that uh, when I was preparing to do this book, I would, uh, you know, Commander Salamander's uh, the blog and uh, listening to Midrats uh, gave me a lot of knowledge. So I, 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 I tip the hat back to you guys too as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take and, care. Take care. And thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for a uh, live edition of Midrats. Please join us again next week. Until then, I hope you all have a great Navy day. Cheers. Place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.